of Jesus in John chapter 4 that I like to read, starting at verse 5. Uh, it says that he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph's, uh, Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. And Jesus was tired from his journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, uh, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now, this is very interesting, uh, and you've probably heard a lot of preachers talk about how odd it is that this woman is going to draw water at noon, like in the middle of the day. This is a very strange time to draw water. Typically, uh, in, that, in that ancient culture, ladies would go out and draw water for their families like at six in the morning. Like they would go out before the sun got up because it's stinking hot in the Middle East, okay? And when, when we're talking jars of water, I mean, we're not talking like a gallon. We're talking huge jars, you know, probably about eight to ten gallons. And these things are made of clay. And these ladies were tough, dude. They were, they were like frontier women. Um, and they would fill these suckers up and carry them back to their home. So you don't want to do that in the middle of the day, obviously. But this Samaritan woman is coming to draw water in the middle of the day. And Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? Uh, and in parentheses there, we understand that his disciples had gone into the town to buy food. In other words, Jesus was by himself. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself and also uh, gave some to his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, well, everyone who drinks from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband. And come back. She said, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. And the fact is, you've had five husbands. Come on, somebody. Uh, <laughs> and the guy you're with now is not your husband. What you just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Captain Obvious. And our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that, that the place to worship... We must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you won't worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't even know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is kind of laying it down right there. Yet a time is coming and actually has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father is looking for. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus gives this huge, deep dialogue to this lady. And then the woman says, well, I know that uh, the Messiah, who is called Christ, is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. You don't really find that very often in Scripture, where Jesus just comes out and says, I am the Messiah. But he says it to this, to this lady. I, the one you're talking to, am he. Then, leaving 
her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town, made their way toward him. And uh, if you continue reading, she obviously convinces them. People come out of the town. They accept him as the Messiah. He stays with them and works a lot of miracles in that town. And it's really kind of a revival in that town. And so I want to just talk about this story just a little bit. But first, I just want to pray over this time. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to read your word and to share your word publicly. I thank you for the freedom that we have to do that. I pray that as we open up your word and unpack your scripture, Lord, and read your literal words, may they sink into our hearts. May, may they become inside of us a living well inside of us. May, may your spirit um, be poured out on us. Help us to see Jesus, Lord. Help us to, to truly see you and all of your beauty and all of your simplicity. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, there's some things that just shouldn't, well, there's just some things that you, you have to buy the name brand. I'm not really like a, an uppity person, but like the other day I tried some HEB brand nacho, like Dorito knockoff chips. And we were, because we were helping in the relief effort down in San Marcos, and they had these little bags of chips in the same color and everything. I grabbed it and looked, and I'm like, well, that's not Doritos. But it's all they had, and I was kind of hungry, and so I tried it. Have you ever tried H-E-B brand? Yeah. No, not as good is, is a nice way of putting it. They, it tastes like cardboard with, like, seasoning on them, you know, like little, little triangle-shaped cardboard pieces with, with seasoning on it. And I was eating it. I'm like, I can't believe I'm eating this. This isn't, like, this is bad for me, number one, but it just doesn't even taste good. And um, there's just some things that you just shouldn't get off-brand. I think, I think you can get off-brand soda. I think, I think Mr. Pibb is all right. Um, you know, I, I, th- I think there's, there's some soda that you can get this off. I'm not really a big soda drinker, so maybe that's why. Um, I think you get off-brand coffee, you know. Every once in a while, you can get some Dunkin' Donuts along with your Starbucks. It's not going to kill you. <laughs> Starbucks isn't that amazing. Their espresso is good, but their regular coffee really is just, yeah, it's all, it's, it's all right. You know, but when it comes to toilet paper, like, you need name-brand stuff. <laughs> Right? In order to, because otherwise you've got to wrap it up so much just to keep your hand from contacting other things. That it's just not even worth it, you know? You end up using the whole roll. And, and uh, I don't know, some of, my, some of my family, not my immediate family, but some of my extended family, they're into Scott's toilet paper. I, that's like the devil's, that, that's, what they, that's what they give you in hell, right? It's like they give you one, one square of Scott's. That's what you get. And good luck with that. I mean, what can you do with that? I don't, that's so thin. So anyway, um, yeah, luckily uh, the, the toilet paper here at, at Cinemark, which I checked, by the way, before we, before we decided to lease this place. I'm like, how is your toilet paper? Because I, like, that's serious. Like, you've got to get name brand stuff. Or it gets, there's some things you can be off brand, but man, there's some things that I'm just really kind of particular about. Same thing with beds. Um, when we first got married, I, t- I told Ro, like, um, the one thing I want for our wedding gift is a nice bed. Because if you get a cheap bed, like, you're, it throws off your whole sleep. And um, I, was a, I was traveling a lot, and so I knew that the W Hotel is really nice. They're, they're known for their beds, and they actually sell their beds online. So we, that was all we asked for for our, for our wedding gift from, from my parents. We're like, just put all the money into a nice bed because I want a good night's sleep, like, every night. 
and um, it's so different. Like, like whenever you like, like whenever you sleep on like an air mattress, you know, it's 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 basically a balloon that they try to convince you is a mattress. <laughs> it's not, and it's just the most uncomfortable thing ever. And you wake up, your back sore, and you feel old. And uh, <laughs> maybe we're getting old. I don't know. Uh, but there's just some things that there, there are no substitute for them. You just, is, this is the name brand that, 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 that is important. I'm not really big on Nike or Reebok, but, but there are some things I think that are very important, uh, that are very specific. And I, and I, and I think Jesus is, is sort of similar to that. Uh, when, when, we, when we look at this story, how, how Jesus approaches this woman, there's really some things that you have to know first and foremost about how Jesus talks about his, his exclusivity or his, his narrowness, how Jesus talks about what he offers versus what uh, this lady has versus what, what, what other people have. He doesn't come in and sort of pick apart what she has. He doesn't make fun of what she has. He doesn't crash in and, and downplay what she has, kind of like how I was downplaying H-E-B Doritos and, 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 and Scott's toilet paper, right? He, he, he doesn't talk about how, how awful and lame that stuff is. Instead, he comes in, first of all, he comes in with great humility. He approaches this lady in a state that he's, he's worn out, he's exhausted, he's thirsty. Now, this is interesting for the Son of God, right? Because, I mean, he's God. He could just, he could just like snap his finger and there would be a glass of ice-cold water. Uh, he, he, he can have whatever he wants. He can do whatever he wants to do. And yet he, he chose to deprive himself of, of, of all sustenance as he's traveling through the desert heat. And he finally sits down at this ancient well. This is Jacob's well. This is the well that Jacob dug, uh, you know, uh, over a thousand years prior to this very moment. It's, one, you know, it's, it's an ancient well. It's still there today in Samaria. It's still there. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a pride, honestly, of the Samaritans. And, and he sits down at that well and he waits for somebody. He waits for this lady to come so that he can ask her for a drink. Now, in our culture, if, 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 if I ask you for something, it's kind of um, rude, right? It's kind of rude for me to ask you to get me something if we don't have any kind of relationship. In their culture, actually, it was kind of the other way around. Because when you, when you ask for something, what you're doing is you're saying, I need something. So it's, it's, it, it, it's actually very humble to go to somebody and say, I really need a drink of water. Like, she's looking at Jesus like, this guy must be really desperate. Because for a man in that culture to admit that he needed something from a woman was, was, was incredible humility. And so Jesus comes to her in a place of humility. He comes to her, he sits down, he's worn out, he's exhausted. And I think what's interesting is actually in his physical state, he's basically portraying where she is in her interior state. Like on the outside, she has a bucket, she has a rope, she's getting water, physical water. But on the inside, she's very thirsty. She's looking, she's parched, she's, she's, she's the one who ought to be asking him for help. And Jesus kind of mentions that. But, but the way that he approaches her, the way that he comes to her is with such humility. And personally, I feel like that's the way the church ought to approach the world. That's the way that we ought to approach our neighbors. That's the way we ought to approach every single person that we come into contact with, not condescending, not looking down on them, not telling them how wrong they are, but rather coming in in humility. That, you know what, I... 
I need things too. I am desperate too. I, I have struggles too. Jesus comes in and he's got a problem. He's thirsty. He, 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 he's tired and he's sitting there and, and, he, and he asked her for a drink. He says, can I have a drink? And, and her response is so interesting to me. He, her response is, you are a Jew. That's her first statement. Well, okay. Um, obviously, she's got a little bit of bitterness going on. Um, <laughs> Because all Jesus did, he asked her, could you help me? That's basically what he's saying. Would you help me? And, and, and the, the problem with bitterness is that, is that when, when you're already hurt, when you're already wounded, even when somebody is just simply trying to ask for some help, sometimes you take it as, well, why would you think I would help you? Right? That's basically what she says. She says, you are a Jew, and you Jews don't have anything to do with us Samaritans, notice the assumption that she just put on all, all the Jews, like all, all y'all, as Texans would say. Like y'all means like two or more, but all y'all means like a big group, I think. I think that's how it works. Although I was in Starbucks the other day, and I'm standing there, and it's just me. It's, it's early in the morning, and the girl at the register, she's like, so what would y'all want? And I look around, and I'm like... Me all would like some all of that all. Like, what, at what point is the man? I'm from Michigan, so I'm still trying to figure this thing out. But at what point is are you just slaughtering the English language? I mean, are we just just crushing it and under our feet? And anyway, uh, anyway, like he, she, she, she puts this blanket statement about all the Jews. You guys don't talk to us. Now, notice she didn't say we don't talk to you. Uh, it's hard to take personal accountability when you're bitter. But she says, she says, well, come on, somebody. She says, you all don't talk to us. Like, you guys got a problem with us. And, 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 and why would you think that then I'm going to help you now? So this bitterness just, just flows out of her. And I love how Jesus responds to the bitterness. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked me. And I would have given you living water. He's not offended by her offense. <laughs> He's not offended by her bitterness. He's not, he doesn't react with bitterness. He doesn't say, well, you know, you guys don't talk to us either. So, um, you know, you're really not that much better. He doesn't react to the bitterness. Instead, he says, actually, I was wanting to bless you. I was wanting to give something to you. And the choice of words here is very interesting. He says, I would have given you living water. Now, as Christians, we're like, woo, yeah, come on, somebody, that's living water. You know, because we know sort of what he means. But the term living water is not, it's not, it's not a Christian term. It's not solely Christian. It's not just Christian. This actually was not invented by Jesus. Jesus didn't invent the term living water. They, they actually called Jacob's well a well of living water. It was well known that that was one of the really good things about Jacob's well is that it was living water, which means there was a stream underneath the well that kept it fresh. So there was a moving stream under the well that always supplied fresh water. It wasn't just a hole with a bunch of water in it. It was this constantly refreshed, constantly renewed uh, uh, well because there was movement, because there was a stream underneath it. So Jesus is using the language that they actually spoke when they talked about Jacob's well. One of the things that was so awesome about Jacob's well is that it was living water. And she catches on to this. She says, sir, 
you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Because she's thinking living water. She's thinking Jacob's well. She's like, how are you going to get into Jacob's well? She says, you don't have anything to, to dwell with here. And then she says, where can you get this other living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from, him, from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Now this is what's interesting because when you look at, 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 at her response, she's almost offended that he would even suggest that there's another living water well around here. And uh, I, I think in order to understand the conflict here, you really have to look at, at, at what made Samaritans different than Jews. Um, oftentimes, when I, when I was growing up, I heard that they were sort of different ethnically and that there was kind of some racism between Jewish people and the Samaritans. And, and really, from my study, that doesn't seem to be very true. Um, the Samaritans were descendants of Abraham. They were descendants of Jacob. They were children of Israel. Um, and uh, uh, they, they, they were descendant from, from that. They were, they were of the tribes of Israel. Um, now, they did intermarry with other nations, but honestly, so did m- almost all the other tribes of Israel. So when, you're, when ethnically speaking, uh, there's only, I think there was only, a, at Jesus' day, there was only two or three tribes that could trace their lineage back to Abraham precisely. Everybody else, they've been carried away captive into other nations for, for hundreds of years. They, so so they, they, had, they had grown dispersed, and ethnically, a, a Samaritan didn't look any different than a Jew. There was not, one was lighter, one was darker, or anything like that. There wasn't any, it, it's not really race. Race wasn't the issue. Ethnicity wasn't the issue. Uh, they were all sort of a mixed bag, uh, you know, of, of ethnicities. The real separation, the real thing that divided Samaritans from Jews was religion. It was a religious viewpoint. And uh, most believe that it goes all the way back to Jeroboam. Um, uh, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, was, was, was ruling his kingdom. And Jeroboam decided that he wanted to rule his own kingdom uh, there in the northern portion of Israel. And so he basically divided the kingdom and said, said, all right, everybody who wants to follow me, you guys will worship here at these two mountains. And he decided that, and the, the, the statement he said in scripture was, um, it's too far to go to, to Jerusalem. Right? It's too far for you guys to worship in Jerusalem because that's where all the Jews worshiped and on Mount Zion. That's where they felt like they were supposed to worship. And he, uh, Jeroboam said, it's too far, it's too big of a drive. Right, so we got a church for you right here. We got this mountain and we got that mountain. And he made golden calves, which, if you know anything about uh, the Exodus, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt, uh, Aaron made a golden calf and said, "Look, this is Jehovah." So it's not like he was changing the religion. He didn't say, "All right, now we're going to worship this golden calf named Gumby," and uh, you know, he he said, "Look, this is still Jehovah. This is this is just this is what he looks like. He looks like a like a calf, like a, like a little little cow." And, and, and he made this, these two golden calves, and he said, all right, everybody, everybody wants to be on my team, everybody wants to serve me, you can just worship here, it's way more convenient, you go up to the mountain and worship this golden calf. And so what happened was, the Samar- they, 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 this is in Samaria, and uh, it's Mount Gerizim was one, of the, was, was one of the main mountains, and that's what they ended up settling on. They said, Mount Gerizim is the mountain of the Lord, this is where you should worship. And Judaism said, no, it's, it's in Jerusalem. And so you had these two different mindsets about where you should worship, but also how you should worship. Because the Samaritans started off by worshiping golden calves. Obviously, they kind of diverted a little bit from, 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 from Judaism, because Judaism is very strict about not building any kind of images and worshiping them. 
But they were a little bit more free. Samaritans were a little more open, a little more, hey, you know, we'll adopt some of the practices of our neighbors. We'll, we'll, we'll take a little bit from here, take a little bit from there. We'll piece together our own religion, our own way to God. They still believed in the Bible, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. They still believed that one God, Jehovah, but there was these other sort of options that, that you might have to get to God. And this is why the Jews said, man, we don't want anything to do with you because you guys are crazy, like you're messing up Judaism. And so they, they said, we, this is craziness. And so they just completely divorced themselves from any kind of connection with the Samaritans. And Samaritans did the same because they said, you guys are worshiping on the wrong mountain and you're way too strict about some certain things. You're too narrow-minded. And, and so we're going to worship over here. And that was the primary divide between Samaritans and Jews. And so Jesus comes into this situation and says, I could give you living water. And one of the things they were so proud about was the fact that they had Jacob's well. That's, that was their connection, right, to, to Jacob, to Israel, that we are sons of Israel. We're the real Israelites. And it's so interesting to me how a, how a culture, this lady who comes from a culture that's so open-minded, they would have golden calves and random stuff. But when it comes to God, very open-minded, but when it comes to wells, very narrow-minded, right? It's like, it's like, you think there's another well? Like, really? No, we can have multiple golden calves, but another well? No, I don't think so. There's not another living water well here. And the truth is that I think all of us are somewhat narrow-minded when it comes to our faith, when it comes to whatever we put our faith in. Um, whether if it's Christianity or if it's another religion or if it's ourselves, if it's our own intellect. Um, I was watching, <laughs> watching Bill Maurer uh, a couple of years ago. Um, he's, 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 a, he's a pretty, pretty well-known anti-Christian person. And I was just curious. I, I, I like to watch atheist blogs on, on, on YouTube and things like that because um, I'm weird. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just curious because I grew up on the other side of the tracks. I grew up on the Christian side of the tracks. I never thought about maybe there's no God. So I'm really fascinated by people who believe that. And, I, and I'm, just, I'm just curious as to, as to their logic and, and how all that works. And, 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 and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what they have to say. Well, Bill was, it was, it was in one of his movies, and he's just like, it's the climactic moment at the end of the movie. And things are blowing up behind him. I don't really know why. But like things are blowing up, the music is a crescendo, and he's looking right into the camera, and he says, <laughs> he, says uh, he says, if you think that there's a God, uh, then I know you're wrong, because I don't know there's a God, and you can't know anything that I don't know. And I thought, oh, well, um, maybe I could, I don't know, but you know, I mean, like, I'm kind of open to the fact that maybe people might know things I don't know, I, I don't know, I guess. But he's very, very, he really values his own intellect and his own reasoning. And so whatever you really value, whatever you put your faith in, you're going to be very exclusive about that thing. And for this woman, it was the well, right? Like, don't talk about another well. There's not another living water well around here, bud. I mean, are you think you're greater than Jacob? Like, do you want to go there? We'll go back 1,100 years. Are you greater than that guy? And uh, she's, she's very exclusive about our well. But the truth is we're all very exclusive about our wells, about the place that we go for sustenance, about the place that we see as our hope, about the thing that we can't see ourselves living without. We're very exclusive about that. We're very 
dogmatic about that. We might be open-minded on several other levels, but when it comes to that thing that, man, like, I, like this is important to me. This is what I need every single day. Man, we become, we become you know, just, just very narrow-minded. She's like, there's no other well, bud. I'm, I hate to tell you, but we can argue this right now. And Jesus answered, and he doesn't knock the well. He doesn't tear apart the well. He just says, everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. In other words, you drink from this well, you'll have to keep coming back to this well. And that's, that's kind of the thing with man-made wells, right? That we have to keep coming back in order to be filled up again. We have to keep coming back. He says, everyone who drinks will be thirsty again, will have to come back. But whoever drinks from the water that I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, eternal life is a concept that she knew, and she knew that that was a religious concept. That was, that was something. Now, now it's like, oh, okay, he's not necessarily talking about another well. He's talking about owning the well. He's not talking about going to another well. He's talking about getting a well inside of you. And that's where the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. And this is why. So that I won't thirst, number one, I can find satisfaction. And number two, I won't have to come back here. And this goes back to the original part at the beginning of the story, the fact that she was there in the middle of the day. Uh, it's believed that, that only people who were trying to avoid other people would go to the well at the middle of the day. And with her track record with husbands, um, I think she was trying to avoid the other ladies. Um, I think she felt excluded. I think she felt judged. Um, I, think, I think she was tired of hearing all the mocking and all the jeering and, and getting all the dirty looks. And I think it was difficult for her to even come to the well. And I think, unfortunately, that's the way it is for church for a lot of people. They're, they're, they don't even want to go because they, 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 they feel judged already before they even get there. They already, feel, they already feel judgment. And she says, I want a well inside of me so that, number one, I'll be satisfied. But number two, I won't have to come back here. I'll be free from coming back to this place of shame. And it was at that that Jesus touched on her greatest shame. And he said, well, okay, go get your husband. And this is the place where she had a, a, a vulnerable moment. And she could have done the Texan thing and said, all right, bye. And just never come back. I've learned that that's how Texans say no. Like in Michigan, if you ask a question, like this is yes, and this is no. In Texas, this is yes, and this is no. They both work. <laughs> Amelia says it's not true. It's not true all the time, but it is true some of the time. People are like, yeah, I'll be there, planning on it. All righty. You don't know until they show up. That's, 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 that's when you know. That's when you know. <laughs> So, so she says, this is her moment, though, to say, okay, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go get my husband. I'll be right back, y'all. And, uh, no, just kidding. Um, this is her moment. This is her out. This is her excuse. This is a chance for her to back off and say, okay, obviously this isn't for me. But she doesn't respond like that. Instead, she answers pretty darn honestly. She says, I don't have a husband. 
Now, she obviously has a past. She obviously has had several husbands, which in this day and time would be kind of awkward. But in that day and time, it's just downright embarrassing. And so she doesn't mention the past. She doesn't talk about that. She just says, well, right now I have no husband. And, and by the way, um, in, in, in our culture, if a, if a lady's been married five times, you would tend to think differently about the woman, right? You tend to think, well, well, she picks poorly or something's going on. But in this culture, actually, it, it really, um, she wouldn't have been responsible for the divorces, so she, like, she wouldn't have been the one to say, I'm divorcing my husband. Uh, it was always the husband who had to divorce the wife. So what this means really is that she has been uh, uh, let go, so to speak, five times. She's been rejected five times. She's been put out on the street five times. That's what this says about her. This doesn't really say that she you know, that she's skanky or anything like that. I mean, or that, you know, that she's got relationship problems. It really speaks more so to the husbands that she has been married to and their treatment of her. She's been neglected five times. She's been rejected five times. She's been put out on the street five times. And she doesn't talk about that past pain. She doesn't talk about that past hurt. She just talks about her present condition that she is currently abandoned. She's currently on her own. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. You're right when you say that you are abandoned. And in fact, you've been abandoned five times. And the guy that you have now doesn't have the guts to marry you. The guy you have now doesn't have the guts to make a commitment to you. What you've just said is quite true. Jesus says basically, ma'am, I know your pain. Like, I know your rejection. I know what's going on. And that's why she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Now, this next statement here in verse 20, many times uh, people just think, oh, well, she's just spouting something off because she's trying to divert away from the five husband story. But really, she's not. Uh, when I talked about Samaritans before, the primary issue is where do you worship? She realizes that this man is a prophet. She realizes this man sees and knows things that other people just don't know. And so she has this burning question on her heart, which is, sir, where should we worship? Should we worship uh, on this mountain or the next? And, and this is not a random question. This is something that's very important to her as a Samaritan. And Jesus replied, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. But all true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's basically saying, look, this religious facade, this religious thing of the mountains, that's passing away. It's a relationship that God is looking for. It's a relationship with you that God is looking for in spirit, in your spirit, and in truth, in your mind. He's looking, first of all, to clear up your past and deal with that and deal with the hurt and the pain of your past. And then he's looking to connect with you and connect with you in your spirit and, and give you the water, give you the satisfaction that you're looking for in the present. And then the woman says, well, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything. Because Jesus didn't really answer. <laughs> she was thinking, okay, he's going to say Mount Gerizim, that's the mountain, or Maybe he's going to say Jerusalem. But Jesus didn't answer. He said, it's not really about mountains. It's about relationship. And she's still looking for a mountain. Because she had a well, 
And so this is her well. And so if she's going if she, if to take her faith off her well, she's going to have to put it on a mountain. And Jesus says, no, I don't want you to put your faith on a well or on a mountain. I want you to, to worship the Father, putting a faith, your faith in a person, the person of God. And she says, well, you know, I'm pretty sure the Messiah is going to clear all this up. And then Jesus says, I am the Messiah. And she believes on him. She believes in him. She puts her faith on the person of Jesus Christ and his Messiahship. And she finds, she goes back to the, to, to the town and says, come see a man who told me everything that I had ever done. And that's really kind of an exaggeration. He didn't really tell her everything that she had ever done. But he told her the shame that she had done. He told her the things that she didn't want anybody else to know. He, and, and even though he knew those things, he still accepted her and he still loved her and he still reached out to her. And that is the gospel. That is the gospel that, that God who is in heaven has come down to earth in order to connect with us and that when he connects with us, he number one, he can satisfy the deepest longings of our soul. But number two, he can actually give us his spirit, his Holy Spirit, that comes inside of us and it becomes a living well. What that means is there's this constant current going on in our life that's constantly refreshing, that's constantly renewing, that's constantly remaking us in our spirit. That, that we don't just get satisfied on Sundays, but that there's this constant stream under the surface of our lives that we get a direct feed from the, from the lake of heaven, as it were, coming straight down into our souls, into our spirit, that constantly renews and constantly revives and, 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 this is, and, and, and this is where Christians even can, can get confused because we think, okay, well, I, you know, somebody said, well, I got the Holy Ghost back in, you know, this certain time period. They'll give you a day and a date when they supposedly got God. And, and that's, that's wonderful. But really what that is, that's the beginning of the well. How much have you received from him lately? How much have you allowed that well to flow in the, just in, in, the, in the undercurrent of your life? It's not something that everybody sees. It's not something that, that, that necessarily is like a, a change of clothes or change of hairstyle. It's, it's, it's under the ground. It's under what people can see. That there's this, this movement from God to you that refreshes you on the inside. And that's what God offers us. That's what God offers you and I. And I would like to offer that to each and every one of you today. The first step is really just to accept his son. The first step is what this woman did. And, and just simply accept Jesus and put your faith in Jesus. Believing that he is the source of your satisfaction. Moving your faith off of a well. Or a relationship. Or a job. Or, or, or whatever it might be in. Moving it off of that thing and moving it to Jesus. Not because... Uh, not because Jesus says, well, if you have to do this, you can't do that, and you have to do that. But really because Jesus is exclusive in the sense that he is exclusively pursuing you and me. He's exclusively trying to satisfy the need of our heart. Um, I play keys a little bit, not really very much. Um, and as soon as we have somebody who can play keys uh, for me, that would be awesome. Uh, so if, if anybody would like to volunteer, sign up. Um, but um, there's such a thing as a C chord, C major. You know, C major, it's, it's C, E, G. <coughs> and if you do the whole thing, C, E, G, uh, C again. And there's different progressions of that chord. 
But they all work together because it's the same three notes um, in the C major. Now, if you're playing C minor, it sounds more like that. It's actually kind of cool and spooky. Great for blues. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, you get a little funky with it. But C major is very, very clear. And um, there's a YouTube video which I'd like to show at some point. It's pretty funny. Uh, it's a guy who's doing a song in church, and poor guy, he really doesn't know what he's doing. He's just singing his little heart out and playing keys, but he, he's, he, he plays a C major knuckle minor V, which sounds kind of like that, and then you play that a bunch, and then you change to a C, B, minor, K, F, which sounds kind of like that. I'm just making those up as I go along, which I think he was too. And so he's just like, <laughs> and it just sounds awful, um, which I can't laugh because I do that sometimes too. But, um, but a C major is very clearly defined, and it just has such a nice ring to it, fullness to it. And that's the way Jesus is. Jesus is very clearly defined, and, and whenever you mix other things into it, it just sounds off. And your life sounds off. And your job sounds off. And your relationships feel off. And everything just feels off whenever you're doing that. Um, it just doesn't flow. Um, there's a certain, certain rhythm to the beauty of Jesus that, that, that when he's in your life, he starts showing you how to play um, life well. Uh, not because he's wanting to set up rules and regulations, but because he wants it to sound beautiful. He wants it to feel right. And he wants you to know what it is to have springs of living water welling up inside of you. And so if you would like to receive that today, we're just going to bow our heads and close our eyes and end in prayer right here. Um, if you'd like to receive that today, just raise your hand right now and just let, just let me know, let God know, and let those around you know that you're, that you're receiving Jesus and that you're putting your faith in him and that you're deciding and choosing uh, to make him the Lord of your life.